So uh, you prayed for us to be convicted? Yeah. Oh, wow. Anybody want to be convicted? I don't see a whole lot of hands going up. Okay. You were? Really? How come? Here she comes. Oh, boy. Justice says, oh, boy. It's going to be good. It was good. Um, and I got convicted, and um, he, uh, the Holy Spirit, brought this passage to mind. And when he was come nigh, Jesus, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you, that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And I just, you know, got to thinking, you know, do you believe that? He said rocks would talk. Rocks <laughs> would praise the name of the Lord for all the mighty works that he has done. Rocks. Don't look at a rock in any other way, but know that, and I just thought to myself, this week it marks my 36th year of coming to Jesus. And, uh, he, and he's been talking to me about rocks lately. So, so, so one of the rocks... Excuse me, God's been talking to you about rocks? Yes, okay. yes. One of the rocks, and this sure happened a few weeks ago at church, where um, some of the kids were sharing about camp. And one of the girls had come up and how they had picked up stones to throw in, in the pond. And they were supposed to be throwing these stones as symbolic of, um, of, of sins in their life that God wanted them to, to release and to let go of. Um, and so one of the, the girls was sharing. And, and she's a new baby believer. And so she, throw, she threw those rocks in the pond. And, and I actually had a rock in my purse that um, I have carried around for uh, years, years. And someone had given me the rock. And when I was sitting there and I was listening, listening to her share about the rocks, I felt the Lord say, Diane, you need to give her your rock. And I'm like, at first I forgot the rock was in my purse. And then I remembered, oh my gosh, that rock's in my purse. And, and that rock was to symbolize not the rock of sin in our life that we hold on to, but the rock that God has given us through the Holy Spirit to equip us and to empower us to do battle against the enemy in our life. The enemies in our life, for Satan, who comes against us, who wants to lie to us, who wants to shake our faith, who wants to tell us that God is not a firm foundation, who wants to say, be downcast, oh, your soul. Uh, that rock is to fight off those kind of lies. And so I, after church, I went up to her and I said, hey, the Lord, I feel like the Lord wants, wants me to share something with you and wants, to give, and wants me to give you a rock. And so anyway, she probably thought it was kind of weird, but I trust that God was going to speak to her. And so then this morning, again, the rocks would cry out. And I just thought, you know, as, 
as I go into my 36th year of knowing Jesus, you know, lots of stuff, you know, has, has uh, you know, I've had to go through and, you know, victories and struggles and mountains and valleys and challenges and encouragement. And I just was like, I am never, I, I'm, I'm going to continue to cry out to the Lord. I'm not going to let the rock cry out for me because I'm just going to keep crying out because the Lord is worthy and his name is great and he's done marvelous works in all of our lives. And I can't wait to hear the Belize team share. I don't think they're sharing today, but just to share what God did there. Um, and so I was convicted. There you go. To, and I didn't feel like, um, I, I don't know, I just, the one song um, that we sang about the Lord being the firm foundation and that we would never be shaken, we would not be shaken. I just felt the Lord wanted me to cry out um, and shout out the, the word never. I will never be shaken because of the Lord. So I'm sorry if you were sitting by me and I scared you, but, <laughs> but it was a rock crying out. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I almost had a heart attack back there. Huh. Someone else have a word? I want to share. Feel kind of alone up here. You feel alone? Up here. Where's your wife? Oh. Maybe some people should join Justice up here. He feels alone. There we go. Does anybody else have a word? Ha 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 Okay, go back to Zechariah 4, which we looked at last week. If you weren't here, I'm going to give you, a, I'll give you a quick review. I know some of you weren't here because you were all the way in Belize. Well, let's read the passage, then we'll do a quick review. Zechariah 4 says, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me. It's a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I'm looking, and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? You need a Bible? What? You need a Bible? Zechariah is the second to the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi is the last. So if you go backwards, it's Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah. Okay? Picking up in verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me of chapter 4 answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands also shall finish it. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. 
Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right hand of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Um, there's a whole lot here, and we, we unpacked some of the symbolism last week. A quick review here is the, the lampstand in the temple. There's a lampstand in the original tabernacle. Then there's a lampstand that's described here. What's happening here is that after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews came back, and of course the temple was in ruins, and they were, they were told by God to rebuild the temple. Um, and there's a description here of the lampstand in the temple, but the description here is significantly different than the description of the original lampstand. And, and that's actually the, the heart of the message here, is the difference between this lampstand and the, and the original. And, and the difference lies in the fact that the, um, in the tabernacle, there was no bowl... And consequently, there, was, there were no pipes feeding the bull, right? And there were no olive trees. Now, the olive tree produces the oil, and the oil feeds the lamp, right? What's the oil a symbol of? The Holy Spirit. All throughout Scripture, we see this. So, so what is the point of, of the symbolism here regarding the lampstand? God is saying to Israel that he was going to give them more of his spirit, that he would give them a fuller supply of his spirit so that they could accomplish the work that God had given them to do. That his work was going to be accomplished not through their power nor through their might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And my spirit will be given to you more abundantly than originally when I called you, that's what he's saying. A more, a, a more abundant granting, empowering by his Holy Spirit so that they could accomplish the work that God had given them to do. Now there's that other symbolism here also. Uh, the lampstand itself symbolizes um, the light of the world, which ultimately is the Lord, but it really symbolizes Israel's calling to be a light. Then in the New Testament, of course, we're called the light of the world, right? Um, and Jesus, in Revelation, walks amongst the lampstands, which are called the churches. So Jesus is walking amidst the lampstands, his people. It's Jesus calling Diane. Did he say, good exhortation, Diane? So the main, the main point of the text is God is encouraging them. Now, he also says in this passage that, that uh, he, he kind of taunts God's enemies. He says, who are you, O mountain? And as we, as we know from Scripture, a mountain represents an obstacle or an enemy. So God is saying that no opposition to God's work will defeat God's work. Why? Because not by human power, not by human might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
So God's Spirit is greater than any human obstacle, any demonic obstacle. God's Spirit is greater than any opposition that can be brought against God's people and God's work. Amen? Amen. So God is encouraging them to move forward with the work because He would provide for them the power and the, and through his Holy Spirit to fulfill that work, he also is encouraging them by saying that all the obstacles will be removed if they'll be faithful. And then thirdly, he encourages them by saying that all opposition ultimately to his work is futile. In other words, if they will be faithful, if they will do God's work through God's Spirit, they will see God's success. So why did they need this exhortation? Well, Israel had just been restored to the land after a long captivity, right? And they were called to rebuild the ruins. The work began, but the foundation, and the foundation had been laid, yet the people stopped working. They stopped constructing. We know this when we read Haggai, which is contemporaneous with this. So, so God calls his prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and exhorts them, complete the divine commission. Finish what God has called you to do. The question is, why did they stop? Well, the passage tells us they stopped because the Jews themselves, and certainly their enemies, despised the day of small things. What does this mean? It means because the the work, the commencement of the work, had a small beginning, and because the new temple in their minds would be a small thing compared to the former glory of Solomon's temple. In other words, they misjudged the value of things. Therefore, the people viewed the work with contempt, and some thought that the work could not or should not be finished. So God raises up his prophets to deliver a challenge to the people's contempt and to their unbelief. And he's, he's encouraging them, or attempting to encourage them, that the work was God's work. And that it would be affected not by human power, but by his Holy Spirit. And so I want to address this issue that Israel confronted, because I think it's common in the Christian life and in the Christian church today, and that is the issue of despising the day of small things. First point I want to make is this, is that God's work often has a small appearance, a small appearance. This small appearance of God's work often happens at the beginning of his work, but not exclusively. But we see this pattern to God's work where he works from something small to something greater. We see it in nature, for example. You see, you see a, a giant redwood tree in California, massive, so big you can, you can cut a, a tunnel out of it and drive a car through it. That's how big it is. Yet, where did it come from? A very small seed. One of the smallest seeds, I understand. So we see this in, in, in nature, how God works from the small to the great, if you will. We see it in providence, right? We see it, how the, the child grows and becomes a, a, a philosopher, a statesman, an artist, a poet, even a preacher. <laughs> we see it in God's work of grace. We see how God called uh, 
when, when God began his work in the Old Testament, he calls Abraham, he calls a guy and his wife. He calls a family. And from that small beginning, God creates a nation. And he says to Abraham that when you look at the stars, your descendants will be that great. When you look at the sand on the seashore, your descendants will be that great. What a promise. Here he just was, a regular guy and his family. We see it in the New Testament church. Jesus picks 12 men, small, a small group of men, not a particularly qualified group of men. Uh, one of them was a traitor, and Jesus knew it from the beginning. So he had 11 men that would be faithful, kind of, until it got hard. Because what we learned in the Jesus story is that when, when things got hard, that not only Peter, but all of his disciples fled. Jesus was totally abandoned by the men who the night before had said, we will die for you. And then the next day, they ran like cowards. Now, I'm not judging them, and I'm not saying I wouldn't have done the same thing. But the fact of the matter is, you talk about a small beginning. You talk about, when you think about Jesus' ministry, the thing that we have to remember is that from a, from a human point of view, it was an utter failure. It really was. No one would confess Jesus at the end. They, Peter denied him. The others didn't deny him as far as you know because they weren't confronted with the choice. But from a human point of view, it was an utter failure. Then Jesus... After he's resurrected from the dead, we know that he, he calls his church to give them what's called the Great Commission, right? Uh, we don't, we're not sure how many were there, but we know in Acts, when we have the account of the Great Commission, it says there are 120 disciples. That's not a large group either when you think that your mission field is the whole world. And you're the only ones that have the message. Now think about that. Can you think about... I mean, what we do is, we're, what we do, well, I think we typical Christian. I think what a lot, a lot of times we do is we just kind of push the responsibility onto somebody else. Well, there's another church down the street. They can preach the gospel. There's somebody on the radio who will do it. There's some evangelists. You know. But imagine if you were the only ones that had the gospel. Imagine. Let's imagine that nobody else has the gospel but us. Would we feel a greater sense of responsibility? I mean, can you imagine the sense of the task before them when Jesus said to, the, to his, his followers in the beginning, all nations in my name, all nations. Wow. Wow. In light of the, the commission and the task, clearly this was a small beginning, if you will. A day of small things. We see small things in, in the Christian life. The, the, the young Christian may be excited and have much zeal, but he's often 
uh, simultaneously can be very carnal and very undiscerning. And he has to grow in grace. So they, uh, the Christian has to mature, and it takes time, right? God's work often has a small day, whether it's a work in the human heart, whether it's a, hu- whether it's a work in or through the church. It's called the day of small things. And maybe you're having a day like that in your life. Well, God wants to encourage you and to remind you that the work in your life is not ultimately dependent on you, but rather on his Holy Spirit. Not by power, not by might, meaning human power or might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We are not to despise the work of God in our lives. We are not to minimize the talents and the opportunities that God gives us. Amen? We need to be reminded, and this is my second point, is that God uses small things and small people. We need to be reminded of this. Now, here's the thing. When you think about the worldview that you encounter in Scripture, and it's not just one view, okay, there, there's a, there, you see progressions in thought, but when you think about some of the exhortations in the Bible, and then you place them in modern context, for example, this is just a random one. Jesus talks about lust, right? If you look at a woman in lust, you've committed adultery. Now, I'm thinking, okay, Jesus spoke that in a day and time when women walked around pretty much covered up. Right? If, if people, if men needed that now, then what about now? Right? When everything's exposed. When we have the internet, we have pornography everywhere. I mean, it, it's like, but it's the, human, it's the human heart. It's the human condition. Right? So we today are drawn toward the, the exciting, the fantastic, the big, the, the bright, the shiny, the, the new, right? The new. Would you like get something new? Something about the novelty of it. Just kind of cool. But then, of course, that wears off. So then you have to get something else new. And that's fun for a while. And then the novelty of that wears off. Then you get, you know, it, it's, it's this human uh, disposition we have for, for the, the, the novel or the exciting. But that's not how God sees things. God sees things in a totally different way than we do. God likes to use small things and small people. Now, when we read the Bible and we're reading about someone, we tend to elevate that person in our mind as if at the time that the event's happening, they were somebody really important. Because they're now important in Scripture, they're important to us, right? But do you realize that by and large, Jesus wasn't important? I mean, he's a Jew walking around the hills of Palestine, preaching, but to the, the larger world, uh, people living their lives, Jesus was a nobody, a, just a, a plain nobody, totally unknown. So Jesus, I mean, the Lord, God uses small things and small people. We, we see it here in Zechariah where he's got a small band of people that came back from the captivity. We see it all throughout Scripture where the Lord uses people that are uh, 
really not important in their society at all, or uses small things to do a great work. I mean, think about Moses. We think Moses. I mean, Moses is the prophet. Oh, I'm just like, he's, he's like the ultimate, the, the Old Testament prophet, lawgiver, etc. But in fact, at the time of his calling by God, he was in exile. He was completely off the radar. He was totally unimportant to anybody in society, really. He wasn't a big-name guy. You know, I hear Christians say this all the time. Well, if, man, if that person got saved, whoa, whoa, wow, wow, because they're a celebrity. You hear this a lot. And occasionally, celebrities will get saved, and the first thing that Christians do is they throw them up on a Christian stage. Mistake. Because I've, over the years, I've seen over and over, a celebrity gets saved, make a profession, they're thrown up on the stage, a few years later, they backslide, or maybe they weren't even saved, they don't, then they deny the faith, and it's all, it's just a scandal, it's all a stumbling block, okay? God doesn't need our celebrity, right? God doesn't need human fame. God chooses small people. When he chose Moses, he was a, he was a nomad, an unknown exile, God used Rahab, of all people, a prostitute, so that his people could uh, defeat their enemies. God chose somebody like Charles Spurgeon, who was uneducated. He didn't go to Bible college. He didn't go to seminary. And yet he was one of the greatest preachers and evangelists in Western society. His works are still read today. People still get saved from reading Spurgeon. Still today, a hundred years later. Think of John Bunyan. You know his story? John Bunyan was, was basically a shoe repairman, if you will. Okay? He ended up getting saved and become, became a radical Christian. And he began to preach Jesus everywhere in the streets of London. And of course, back in those days, you had to have a license to preach. You couldn't just go witness to people, sadly. But it's true. Even though England was considered a Christian nation, it was Anglican, and if you weren't Anglican, you were going to get in trouble. And lay people, as they were called, non-clergy, they couldn't just go around preaching. So Bunyan gets, gets saved, he's a Baptist, and he just starts preaching Christ, and the result was he got thrown in prison. That was very common back then when Christians would throw other Christians in prison. Oh, for the love of Jesus. So he goes into prison, and this, of course, was a day of small things. If ever there was, that was it, right? So he's languishing in a cold, damp, the cold, damp tower of London, which my wife and I got to visit years ago. Fortunately, I wasn't thrown in there. <clears throat> so how did he respond to his day of small things? Did he, did, he, did he sit in prison and complain and murmur, or did he despair? No, what, what Bunyan did is he spent the hours and the days and the months, and yes, even the 12 long years in prison, to write one of the greatest classics of Christian literature, The Pilgrim's Progress. That's what he did with his day of small things. Now you might be thinking, well, that's cool, but I'm not a Bunyan. Think how impoverished the world would be if he'd spent his time cursing his fate or wishing he'd, he'd been born with a silver spoon in his mouth. 
instead of penning that classic which has endured for centuries. We should not, my third point is we should not despise the day of small things. Why? Let me give you a couple simple reasons and then we'll close. God doesn't. <laughs> God does not. This is the, the, the transmutation of values. Do you like that phrase? Isn't that a cool phrase? I think I got it from Nietzsche or somebody. Of course, he was trying to turn Christian values into anti-Christian values. But there's only two kinds of values. There's God's values and man's values, right? And when you read Scripture, when you get a renewed mind, what you see is that many of the things that people value, God doesn't value. And things that are very important to God, people don't care about. Now, we looked a couple weeks ago at the text, which is in Matthew and Mark and, I think, Luke, where Jesus talks about the value of a soul. He says, what does a man gain if he gains the whole world? Meaning, all the wealth of the world, all the power of the world, all the prestige of the world, but loses his own soul. The point being that, a, that one human soul is of more value than all the wealth, power, and prestige of the world. That's how God sees things. But that's not how we see things. I was listening to a, a, a Christian radio program yesterday. And uh, they're talking about Christian worldview stuff, you know. And uh, the ministry director was talking about how his organization does these, these surveys and these polls, and they kind of try to gauge, you know, the Christian, Christian worldview in American culture. And all the statistics he gave were, were, were um, really alarming regarding the professing church and how their worldview was not shaped by the Bible. Was not shaped by the Bible. That what people thought really didn't reflect what they said they believed. They said they were Christians. They said they loved Jesus. They said they believed in the Bible. But when we actually came to, to particular things, what they said didn't line up with Scripture. Now I'm not talking about arcane things. I'm talking about simple things like are people fundamentally good or bad? Is there a heaven or is there a hell? I'm not talking about is the rapture before, mid, late, you know. I'm talking about fun, what are considered cardinal, fundamental doctrines. Um, you know, let me say one thing about the Bible. It, it doesn't get in your brain by osmosis. You can have it on the, on the I have a, a, a Bible, full Bible and a Greek New Testament right next to my bed. And every night I, when I go to bed, it's about two feet from my head. And it's never gone into my head from that night. <laughs> it's never done that. Some nights I've fallen asleep with my Bible on my chest. I'll be reading and I fall asleep. But even holding it on my heart doesn't make it go in my heart. It doesn't soak in. You have, to, you have to read it in. You have to meditate it in, right? You have to hear it preached in. You have to hear it taught in. You have to, you have to bring it in to your mind, into your heart, into your soul. It doesn't just kind of creep in. You can get a little pocket-sized Bible and carry it with you all day long. It won't soak into your heart that way. 
You have to read it. You have to meditate. You have to study on it. And when you do, what you find is that God values things in a way totally different than the world values. Worldliness is simply thinking like the world. That's really what it is. It's having a messed up value system, if you will. And so if we don't renew our minds, we may not be in any gross sin, but we can be worldly. We can be very worldly, actually, in the way we think. God doesn't despise the day of small things because God likes to use small things and small people. We're specifically told in the scripture, in 1 Corinthians 1.27, that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That he has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the strong. He specifically tells us that this is one of the principles of his present economy in the world. So instead of saying, well, I'm not a Spurgeon, or I'm not a Bunyan, instead of saying, well, I'm just a nobody, so God can't use me. Rather, you should say, because I'm a nobody, God can use me. Amen. Rather, we should say, because I'm a nobody, I am eminently qualified. Not because of who I am, because Scripture tells us that we are nothing in ourselves. That's why Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not because of who I am or because of who you are, but we need to say, because of who I am not, God can use me. Because he uses small things and small people, he uses the things that are despised. He uses the things, it says, that are not. They don't even exist in the eyes of man, but God sees God knows what he can do with you if you will submit to him. And I can assure you, it is greater, it is more than you can even imagine. The scripture says that Paul prays for, for the Ephesians that, that we're going to read it. Go to Ephesians 3. I want you to see it and read it. Ephesians 3, Paul prays. 16, 316, that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory. The riches of his glory. To be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the the width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, and that you being filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to his power that works in us. To him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all things that we can even imagine. Your qualification is not who you are. 
Your qualification is who do you serve. Your qualification is who is living inside of you. If the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you, then you have power that you haven't even began, just begun to tap into. Moody, D.L. Moody, great evangelist, but hundreds of thousands. I don't know how many. I mean, he was witnessing on the fields of the Civil War. I mean, this is a man who surrendered his life, and he tells how he surrendered his life to the Lord and how the Holy Spirit took his life. But he said, the world hasn't even seen what God can do with the man fully surrendered to his spirit. And I believe he's right. We need to stop looking at ourselves, looking at ourselves in such a way that we're despising God's gifts, despising God's calling, despising what God has already done in our lives, whether it's individually or corporately. And we need to realize that, that to do so is ingratitude and it's unbelief. What happens when people don't believe God? It hinders the work of God. In Mark 6, you know the well-known story, Jesus goes to his hometown and he's been preaching and teaching and healing and doing amazing things. He goes to his hometown and they're like, huh, it's Jesus. I remember him when he ran around in his diapers. He can't be a prophet. And they didn't believe. And it says because of their unbelief, because they wouldn't believe, Jesus could not do many mighty works there. Now, God can overcome unbelief. God can do whatever God wants to do. Amen? God, when it came to Saul, he was certainly a man in unbelief. He hated, hated Jesus and hated the church. And what does Jesus do? He knocks him off his donkey. Onto his other donkey. Okay? So when God wants to, wants to slay somebody, he'll slay them. If God wants to save somebody, he'll save them. You know? But we have to understand that God's ordinary way of operating is that he, he demands faith and then he honors faith. He responds to faith. And our faith really does matter. Unbelief really does matter. And in, in the case of Jesus' hometown, they believed little and they received little. And that's a principle of God's kingdom. Jesus said this, Jesus, not me, Jesus, according to your faith, so be it. How many of you are asking God to give you a hundred converts? None of you are. Are any of you even asking for a dozen? Are you even asking for one or two? According to your faith, so be it. That's the principle of the kingdom. God... God wants to work. God wants to work in your life. God wants to work in your family. God wants to work in your church. God wants to work in your community. But what is staying God's hand? One of the things is the ingratitude and unbelief of God's people. Believe little, receive little. Believe much, receive much. According to your faith, so be it. 
Edward Payson said, the, the, the way to obtain much is to be thankful for little. In other words, you recognize what God has already done, and you thank him for that, and then you ask for more. Let me ask you this. I was thinking about this. I'm not really great at sermon illustrations, but I just thought of this one on the way to church today. Let's say that God, the Lord, appeared to you. And he said, if you will pray 15 minutes a day for one year, at the end of the year, I'll give you $10 million. Would you do it? Trust me. The first thing in the morning, you know what I would do? I would pray. And I'd probably pray at the end of the day just in case I had missed the morning slot. <laughs> Silly illustration, but what does it illustrate? What we value versus what God values. What if God said to you, if you'll pray 15 minutes a day for the next year, I will give you a soul. Would you do it? Well, soul, that's not very sexy. That's not very cool. I mean, what, what, that, a soul? Who wants a soul? I already got a soul. <laughs> Jesus says that one soul is of more value than that $10 million. Right? You see, part of the problem, part of the reason Israel was despising the day of small things is they weren't seeing things the way God sees them. They weren't valuing what God was valuing. Jesus in Matthew says one of my favorite verses. That if, if a person gives another person a cup of cold water in the name of a prophet, they'll receive the reward. What that means is the smallest thing done in God's name and for God's glory, is seen by God and valued by God. See, we want the big glitzy thing. God's looking at the small things. God's looking at the small people. God's looking at the small activities. Because he doesn't see the way we see. You know why something is important? really, in the final analysis. You know why some, anything is important? It's only important because God says it's important. That's the truth. If God says something is important, then it's important. And if God says something's not important, it's not important. So we have to see things the way God sees them. And last thing I want to say is that the message to Israel at this time was don't judge by appearance, obey. Don't judge by appearance, just obey. Well, that took faith, of course, right? Because in God's work, small things and small people accomplish great things over time. Why does God choose the small things and the small people? 
because he wants to demonstrate his power in weakness. His power in weakness. Paul says that we have this treasure, meaning the gospel treasure. We have this treasure in gold vessels. Oh, that's not it? You're the only person that knows that passage? We have this treasure in what? Earthen vessels or jars of clay. Not the golden vessels, not the silver vessels, not the glitzy vessels. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that, so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Which is to say, I'm, God says, I'm going to use a weak thing to show my power. I'm going to use a weak person to show my power. I'm going to use a weak church because by using that group of people, my name and glory will be exalted. That's why. Because no one would expect that God will use such a person or such a group. And that's exactly what happened in Acts. Who are these unlettered men? They were the ones God used. God is all about his name. Amen? God is all about the fame of his name. I hate to tell you this. I know this is going to hurt, but I'm going to say it anyway. God doesn't care about your reputation. He doesn't. The only reason our reputations are important is if they reflect on his glory and honor. Other than that, it doesn't matter. We are not the center of the universe. God is doing things in, in the world, in our community, because God has things to do. And sometimes those might be at cross purposes with what I want. What if God wants to do something that I don't want? How dare he? What do I do then? Do I pout and cry and whine? You think Bunyan wanted to be in prison? Like, oh, cool, I get to write a book. No. It was a day of small things. It's a terrible day. Right? The power is of God so that the honor goes to God. And the Lord said to his enfeebled remnant of Israel after the captivity, not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So don't despise what God has done in your life. Don't despise what God has done in your church. Be thankful for the smallest of gifts, the smallest of graces. But continue to pray and ask for more. Because God can, by his power, accomplish great things in your life and in your community and in your family. God can do this. You may not see how, but God can do this. Amen? Let's be a people that are faithful and thankful. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for granting us your Holy Spirit that dwells in us as well as your Spirit that dwells amongst us. I pray for myself and for 
all of us here, God, that we would be a people of gratitude and a people of faith. I pray, Lord, that we'd not look at ourselves, our own ability, our own strength, but realize that the power and success depends on you. And I pray, God, that we would look to you in faith, believing you, believing that your power is truly sufficient, whether it's for victory in our personal lives, whether it's for healing in our homes, whether it's for uh, the church being the church, whether it's for reaching the lost, that, God, your power is sufficient. Make us a people of faith. Lord, finally, we thank you for the work you did this last week in Belize. We thank you for the souls that were saved. We acknowledge that was your work. We give you the honor and the glory. We pray for your anointing on the service next week as people share. May we be built up in the faith so that we can just further serve you and honor you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.